This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome back to Mike and Maurice's Mind Escape. Let us help you escape your mind. Folks, welcome back to Mike and Maurice's Mind Escape. We have episode number 275 tonight. This is going to be the first part of an ongoing series that we're going to do. Um, we are going to call it Psychedelic Gnosis with Encyclopedia Newman. Is it Encyclopedia? Encyclopedia? Something like that. Uh, with our buddy P.D. Newman uh, and also joined by co-host Leah is back. Um you can check out PD's stuff down below. At the bottom, I have all of his links to his books, uh, his Facebook group, and all that kind of wonderful stuff. Um, he has a new book coming out. It's called Theurgy and Practice, correct? Theurgy, Theory, and Practice, yeah. Theurgy, Theory, and Practice. It's a real tongue twister. Uh, and that'll be out through uh, Inner Traditions. Shout out to Inner Traditions. We love Inner Traditions. Um and yeah, it's 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 going to be uh, looking forward to that one. I know he's been reading up on it. I see him uh, reading on uh, all the ancient Greek stuff and Roman stuff, and I think you're probably going to have a real good, uh, real good take. So I look forward to that. Um, check out Leah's stuff as well. I have her website down below. Uh, she does a YouTube channel called The Invisible Night School, where they talk about the UFO phenomenon as well as other things. And she's got a great Substack. Check that out. And yeah, you know, we're Mind Escape, so we've got tons of other stuff going on, but you can check out all of our links down below. I'm not going to go too deep into it. We do have a Patreon episode that we released with PD. He was actually on only two episodes ago. Our last episode we did with Dr. Andrew Gallimore, great episode on uh, DMT and DMT entities and the mechanisms behind how these things work, uh, what we know. Um, but yeah, so let's get to it. Um, Again, if you want to support any one of the things that we do, you can click on the link down below. At the end of the episode, I will be playing the trailer to our documentary that gets released March 10th through 12th at the Roswell UFO Expo. Uh, shout out to Toby, shout out to Shane, um, and shout out to Maurice, who's diligently editing this documentary for us right now. So 
Again, all the links are down below. We love everybody. Let's get this thing rocking. So I asked you what you wanted to talk about for the first episode or first installment of this, and you said uh, Native American psychedelic use or entheogens, maybe New World entheogens, something along those lines. What <clears throat> what has you most fascinated about that aspect of psychedelics, or at least right now, what you're studying? Well, primarily, when most people think about Native American entheogen use, they immediately go to peyote, the, the probably the most visual, uh, excuse me, visible uh, example. But uh, and I had no idea outside of peyote and tobacco that there were other examples. Um, but once I started digging in, it was actually at, uh, in, in Yorkshire, um, I was talking about my theurgy book and I was talking about the fact that in their, the theory of theurgy, there are these two portals in the sky, um, one through which you incarnate and one through which you excarnate. And, uh, Graham Hancock and Dennis McKenna weren't in the conversation, but they overheard me and both of them turned around at the same time. And, and they said, Oh, are you talking about the path of souls? And I said, I, I don't know what that is. And, uh, they told me to check out Greg's book, Greg Little's book, path of souls. And I was absolutely floored by the similarities, the fact that they virtually every step in this process is represented in this native American model. But the only difference was that in this theurgy model, there are very clear examples of entheogen use to induce these death states while you're alive. The, 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 what's called the rite of elevation, the major central ritual of theurgy is a death ritual where you die and you're resurrected afterwards. And during that death, you travel through this portal and go get on the Milky Way and, uh, that's exactly what we were seeing in this Native American model. So I thought, well, if it's not just a death journey in Greece, if it's an initiatory process meant to um, put somebody through death nominally in a, in a ritual setting, is that the case with the Native American model? Are they using this after death model for some, some kind of a ritualized setting to put a person through a ceremony? Um, and once I started digging it, that's absolutely the case. Uh, and the, the entheogens that they were using, that they were mastering, um, absolutely blew my mind because it's, it includes, um, Datura. It includes, uh, morning glory seeds, which is, uh, a, an ergotine, um, it mimics, uh, LSD, but not quite as potent, similar to LSD. Um, they were using um, uh, Nicotiana rustica, obviously a, a very strong tobacco. But the most surprising, and this isn't in the literature, you won't find anybody saying they were using these, these other plants, but I found evidence that they were using an, an ayahuasca analog, uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with ayahuasca, it's a South American tea made with plants containing both DMT and some form of a monoamine oxidase inhibitor like harmine or harmaline. Um, 
to induce something very similar to mushrooms. Like mushrooms, psilocybin is for phosphoroxy and in DMT. So it's nature's orally active form of DMT that doesn't necessitate that MAOI addition, but they're using this MAOI addition. So when I started looking at the Native American usage, um, I'm trying. I'm trying to find all the plants they're using. So I, I ended up um, contacting the the local university here, and I, I lied to them. I told them I was a doctor of archaeology and that I was traveling through, and that I wanted to use their Professor their- Newman. I presume. I love this. This is so cool. Said, you should have had a I, little I, monocle I, on too. Yeah, yeah, I, sh- I should have. Um, but I just said, you know, I'm traveling through, I'd love to stop and take a look mainly because of this mound called Owl Creek mound, um, that is in the, the mounds are positioned in the exact places as the, what they call the chief's hand, what we recognize as Orion, but they, they're in the position of Orion. Um, and the lady who had excavated it, she's passed away now, but I found out that she was with this school so i'm trying to find her papers specifically but once i got to digging in there i found several unpublished theses doctoral theses that discussed botanical assemblages that were recovered from these sites so they they gave a complete list of all of these different plants they were using now, they're obviously separated into categories like foodstuffs, you know, things for um, textiles, for building. But then there's this, this X category of drugs, and that includes these other. Now, since I've started digging into this, I've found published examples that I can actually s- cite. Um, at, at least five or six different reports on botanical assemblages, all of them have the same plants in them. Uh, the main thing we see is the Nicotiana rustica. Then we see the, the morning glory, the Datura, um, something called Ilex vomitoria, which is N- North America's only native source of caffeine. It's a lot like yerba mate. It's, I think it's in the same family as yerba mate. But what surprised me was report after report after report included Gladitia triacanthos and Passiflora incarnata. And this is what I, I call my Misihuasca hypothesis. It's a major part of the, um, the book I'm writing right now. The Inner Traditions is also picked up, but the book isn't finished, so I don't know when it'll be published. But I re- as soon as I saw the Gladitia triacanthos, I thought, where do, where do I know this from? Why do I know that name? And it, and it dawned on me a couple of days later, it's in Trout's book. Uh, Trout's, uh, he wrote a book called Some Simple Tryptamines, where he um, bioassayed a number of different plants that were in the acacia and mimosa family to try and determine if they were psychoactive like mimosa hostilis or like, um, like acacia nilotica. And this plant in particular, before it was classified as Gladitia triacanthos was called Acacia Americana. And actually the, the triacanthos that acan is the same root as Acacia. Acacia means thorned. And these things are covered in gnarly thorns. But that's where 
It's and it's the only source I think. There's there are no academic sources that talk about the DMT content of this tree. Only trout. So shout out to trout for you know being the the uh, uh, trailblazer in in this regard. But in every report, there's Gladitia triacanthos, and right next to it is Passiflora incarnata, passion flower, which is not every passion flower has monoamine oxidase inhibitors in it, but the ones that grow here, the incarnata species, do. They have harmine in them. And <clears throat> we put it to the test. We, we took a small amount first um, and definitely noticed something. So then we upped the dose. We, we eventually found out that roughly 10 grams of Gladitia triacanthos with 25 grams of the Passiflora incarnata is enough to elicit an experience that I can't distinguish from ayahuasca and it's in all of these plant assemblages. So. And you did, you plants, tried this, this combination. Yeah. Yes. Yes. I mean, every, everything I, I, I write about, I try it because I want to make sure I want to understand like uh, right now I'm, I'm working on the chapter on. Well, it's good to know you're not sitting back. Like, <laughs> tobacco. Let's see what happens when they try this. Yeah. I'm like the Haldane, <laughs> like, you know, Haldane. <laughs> He was a medical doctor, but he wouldn't give any of his patients a, a, a drug unless he had taken it himself. So I kind of uh, I, I'm inspired by Haldane to say, well, if you if you want to talk about it, you you need to be sure what you're talking about. And it absolutely is entheogenic. And if those plants were found alone, I probably wouldn't bat an eye at it because you could argue that the Gladitia tree canthos was being used for firewood or for building, even though they didn't build with it. They tended to build with cedar because cedar was their this this sacred tree to them. But the Gladitia tree canthos shows up in all these botanical assemblages next to passion flower. But like I said, I wouldn't bat an eye at those if it weren't for the fact that they're listed alongside things like black nightshade, datura, and morning glory seeds. Um, <clears throat> so once I started really unpacking this, this stuff and uh, reading everything I could find, I finally stumbled upon a, re a report, um, by a woman named Judith Knight, who's also passed away, um, on the reverence for this moth, this particular moth species that shows up in all of this different Mississippian art. It shows up in Moundville. It even shows up in Southwestern art and the Zuni Art and, and uh, uh, bowls from um, what is that mound called? Um, Pottery Mound, I think it's called. <laughs> but this moth um, was identified by an entomologist as uh, Manduca sexta, which is a tobacco moth, and it, it only lays its eggs and feeds on tobacco and datura. So they see this as kind of a divine figure. It can eat, it can consume this stuff. And it, and the, the transformation into the moth from the larva was also significant to them. There are shell gorgets. Gorgets are these um, necklace kind of like pendants that they would wear. And there are examples of shamans emerging from a cocoon that's very much like these cocoons that are made, these chrysalis, chrysalis that are made by these, these uh, caterpillars, these, they call them hornworms, tobacco hornworms. <laughs> and I even found ethnological reports of 
um, a myth. They're talking about a myth and, and it's the sun God is trying to determine if these two boys are his kids or claiming to be his kids. And these, they're the, the hero twins that show up in virtually every Mississippian culture. <laughs> so he says, and well, world see. cultures, right? I mean, you have, uh, yeah, what's the, yeah. the Roman, is it, um, um, I'm drawing a blank. Romulus and Reed. Romulus. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Yeah. This hero twins motif and it shows up in Central America. And it shows up in South America, but it shows up here too. in, in virtually every Mississippian culture and he gives them a test. Uh, and this test becomes what's called a charter for a rite of passage for young boys, a myth they use myths to explain why they do certain things. Once they use it that way, archaeologists call it a charter. So it becomes a charter for this rite of passage for boys where <coughs> he tells them, you see that, you see that caterpillar right there, that worm, he pukes blue stuff up if you watch him. And they tell the boys to take that caterpillar and put it in their mouth. Don't chew it up, but just put it in their mouth and then spit the juice out like they do tobacco. Well, this hornworm, unlike other insects, is unaffected by nicotine. Nicotine is toxic to most insects and kills them. But this hornworm can not only not be affected by it, but it can hold it in its body as long as it wants. And it can eject it at will as a defense mechanism. So they've got these boys holding this worm in their mouth so it can spit in their mouths. Now, I don't know if the spit, if the, the caterpillar somehow um, metabolizes the substance and makes it different somehow or, or um, easier to deal with. But when they pass this test, he takes a calumet off the wall, which uh, a peace pipe, and he packs it with something he calls the tobacco that kills and he says, and if they can smoke it and survive, then he knows they're supernaturals and they're his children. So within the, the archaeological reports, the ethnological reports, there are all these overwhelming examples of, of entheogen use among the Mississippians. Um, the most obvious are these shells that they drink out of. And they would, these shells come from... Um, from the Gulf, they are what's called lightning whelk shells. This is that They're black water, right? Black drink. That's or right. black drink. Yeah. Casina is what they called it. <laughs> At least the Florida natives called it Casina. And this 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 drink, um, it's made from that Ilex vomitoria, that caffeine source. Well, when the Spanish and the French show up and they observe these natives doing this ritual, they've got this black drink they've boiled up with the casina and the shells. They're not little shells. They're huge. They fill them with this stuff and they drink like it. Like conch shells or like what, what are we talking here? Yeah, like um, um, I've got a small one right here. This is a small example, but it's one of these oh, okay. little guys. And <laughs> this is the same species because they only wanted them to spiral to the left. You see, the spiral goes this way, whereas other species, virtually every other species, spirals to the right. So they, they wanted these in particular. <clears throat> but the Lemoyne, for example, made these woodcuts of the ritual where they're sitting around drinking it and vomiting 
over and over. They drink it and they vomit. And it was this observation that led botanists to classify it as vomitoria and thought for years that this was an emetic. Well, it only grows in certain areas. One of the areas is in North Mississippi. So of course I was like, well, I'm going to go get some and I'm going to make some and we'll see if we vomit and then we'll know if it makes you vomit. It does not make you vomit. I've, I've drank lots of this stuff. It, it'll make you speed, but it won't make you vomit. <laughs> so why are they vomiting? Um, I think the reason they're vomiting is probably because of this ayahuasca analog that they were mixing with it. Um, so in the literature, it says that the base is this casina, this Ilex vomitoria, but there were a number of different secretive plants they would add to it for different purposes. <clears throat> One of those plants we know was Datura because <clears throat> something like 90% of the shell cups that remain um, come from Spiro, Oklahoma, and a group of scientists got together and they tested the residues of these cups and they tested positive for Datura and for um, Theobroma, ca caffeine related things from the Ilex. So we know they were drinking the Datura with it. We, I don't know if they were looking for something like DMT or if it would be, if you'd be able to to find it after that many years, a thousand years, but yeah. What, so the dating on the black drink for like the archeological record has 1050 AD. Is that kind of where you found? Well, that's it when the Mississippian culture started, it, right? But those, same, but those same shell cups have been discovered in the graves of people from the Hopewell. Well, that's what I'm asking because I don't believe a lot of these dates because they <laughs> seem so relatively new. It's like if this stuff was going mm -hmm. on then, then it was going on a lot longer. They just don't have evidence, right. physical evidence for it. It was definitely going on, and a good ex we know it was because the rit the ritual they're going through, even they're trying to say, goes back no further than 900, 1050 ish. That, but. There's a, um, a study that was done on a particular mound complex that matches this ritual to a T where they're doing what, what they're explaining is this actual place that goes back to Hopewell times. So the ritual is at least that old and it involves Bear. Makwa Manito is his name in a, a Ojibwa. He's who brought the Midawiwin, which is known as the Grand Medicine Society, to the natives. And Midawiwin is like this secret society of shamans that's particularly foc focus on plants and how to use plants for healing. Um, well, one of the names for this bear is the left-handed one. And they, they say this, there's a, the charter for this is this story about a man who he comes home and he realizes his mother or his wife has been murdered and he thinks it's a bear that's done it. And he goes out to the bear village and he starts launching arrows at the bears and he kills several of them. And one of these bears sees him coming and he puts his moccasins on so he can run away, but he puts him on the wrong feet because he's in such a hurry. And they say that this is why bear paws, their tracks are move outward instead of inward like a man's tracks because his moccasins are on the wrong feet.
Uh, in festivals for makwa or for bear, they eat the things that bear likes to eat, like honey, maple sugar, berries, and they only use their left hand as an indication of that. It's like saying at the end of his right arm is a left hand. So when they want to do something to revere him or honor him, they use their left hand. And that's what I suspect is the, the real meaning behind the left-handed shells that spiral to the left. Um, there, it's, the, it's evidence that this drink goes back to at least as far as this, this bear ritual um, that, that is the charter for the Midawiwin. Um And the Midawiwin, they, they, they have these powders, these magic powders they carry, and they carry them in animal sacks called Midawayan. And they'll usually make them from the skin of the animal that's related to the degree that they belong to. So it's a four degree system. Um, later, it became an eight degree system. But in the, in the original model, it's a four degree system. And then each degree is ruled by a different manito, which is a supernatural. Um, and these are envisaged as being animals. Um, so one degree is ruled by otter. One degree is ruled by bear. One is ruled by owl. And for each of these degrees, they have these magic pouches, almost like a grigri bag in hoodoo or a, 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 a paquette congo in voodoo. Um, and they put in these, these pouches, these magic herbs they use, and they're constantly referencing hunter's medicine that they describe as being a vermilion colored red powder, which was just stunning to me having spent the last 20 years investigating alchemy in this red powder problem. Um, and, and at one point they even name the fucking plant, um, in one of the charters, remember there, they have these, these rites of passage, one of them to determine whether or not the boy is actually the, uh, the son of a supernatural. They have him lay on a bed of honey locust thorns. Honey locust is Glidicea triacanthos. While he's laying on them, he gets put in a pot and boiled. So he's boiled with the honey locust in this pot. And this is the tree that they say they get their hunter's medicine from. They even describe it as vermilion colored. And uh, another charter um, from a different Midawiwin group has this sick girl. There are two girls instead of two boys. One of them is deathly ill. Um, her body is basically rotting and she smells awful. And the other daughter says, I can't stand the way she smells. You know, can we do something about it? And she overhears her and she, so she runs away and she goes to sleep beneath this tree that it says has sharp bows, sharp boughs, excuse me, the, the uh, overhang of the tree and has thorns in it basically. And eventually they dig the roots up of this tree. And I kid you not, it says they recover a stone from the root that they get red powder from, and that's Hunter's medicine. That's, that's stunning to me. I just absolutely st staggering to me. Um, but that's what I, that's what I'm calling the, this Missahuasca hypothesis is uh, this overwhelming evidence that they're using DMT. And now in some cases, there isn't passion flower. There will be triacanthos, the Gladitia triacanthos, but Passiflora incarnata 
doesn't show up in about two or three different reports where the tree does. So I thought, well, how does it work? The more I started digging, Nicotiana rustica works as a monoamine oxidase inhibitor. I didn't know that tobacco, certain tobacco strains were MAOIs, but this one is. And, and when I looked even further and started investigating the chemistry of this Ilex vomitoria, the Yaupon holly that they make the black drink from, it's a monoamine oxidase inhibitor, just like yerba mate is a monoamine oxidase inhibitor. So it's, it's overwhelming evidence that, that they're using a DMT, an ayahuasca analog. But even if they're not, they are using Datura. They are using morning glory seeds. They are using black nightshade. So it's a pretty um, evolved, uh, complex system of, of medicine that they've, they've arrived at. And it's all but lost at this point. Um, I brought this thesis to the attention of a Cherokee chief who is also a Mason and a Rosicrucian. So we get along. We've known each other for a while. And um, frankly, he was offended by everything I was saying, uh, that, that I would even insinuate this. Um, later, he sent me an article called Altered States of America from um, an archaeology magazine by Gail Keck as the author. It confirms everything I'm saying. So he, I took that to mean, you know, I can't tell you what this is, but here that talks about it here. That's so, just my so he was inf- offended at the fact that you were talking about possibly some of their sacred, secret rituals, something you probably shouldn't know, or he was more offended that you were insinuating that they used entheogens or like what, what was the. Both, both. Oh, he, okay. he, he admitted to me that they used some, that they used Datura. Um, but he said, it's not like you think. And I said, well, wh- what do you think I think? You know, he said, well, we're not using it to trip. It's a medicine. And I said, well, of course, it's a medicine. That's what every indigenous culture calls this stuff. It's a medicine, you know, but it, but you're using it. And that was pretty much where the conversation ended. But and I and I don't know if someone else was present. This was over the phone. So I don't know if someone else was present and overheard him talking to me about this. And he thought, you know, I need to shut this down you know, pretty quick or not, but this is a man mm-hmm. who's been doing peyote since he was seven and, and peyote cool. rights. And so I already thought, why, why would you be offended by it? Why this? would you be bashful about this? Yeah. 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 He's a Cherokee chief out of Oklahoma and uh, very knowledgeable. He gave a lecture on um, how Masonic ritual actually influenced the way peyote is used in the half moon ceremony that Quanta Parker created. Uh, I didn't realize this, but a lot, a lot of natives became Freemasons right off the bat were immediately attracted to it. And after investigating the Mita Wiwin, it makes sense because they already have this graded degree structure where mysteries are doled out, you know, slowly at a time and, and the acacia correlation, uh, absolutely blew my mind like you gotta remember it's acacia americana also we we found evidence of acacia use all over the place in an entheogenic context and america it it looks like is right there in the middle of it north america we know in south america there's um 
anadonanthera colubrina and anadonanthera peregrina, which is where we get yopo or apina snuff that they make from the so seeds. With the rustica tree. with the DMT containing anadonanthera, that would be enough to, to launch off? Yep. It absolutely would. So snuff, that's probably what they were doing with the snuff. Yeah. They, there's there's evidence of snuffs. The fact that it was a red powder leads me to believe that it was probably a snuff. Yeah, you're spot on. Yeah, I, uh, like I said, I, I went back to uh, that episode and rewatched it. <laughs> um, the Jonathan, well, it was a Hamilton's Pharmacopoeia episode where he was trying to recreate yeah. Jonathan Ott's journey to Argentina where there's a specific and an athera tree there that they do this specific um, ceremony and stuff like that. So the guy, he, he's one of the few legit shamans I've seen on a television show. I couldn't believe I was watching that, but that guy that he met that, that gave him that snuff, you're looking at a real shaman when you're looking at that. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Hearing you talk about this reminds me of Hoppe. I think that's how you say it, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? Same kind of thing, right? Yep, it's uh, it, that's just a tobacco snuff, but um, you do have people now adding things like cocoa to it um, just to mm-hmm. kind of synergize it. But uh, I think it is pronounced rape, but the rapey, the rapey pronunciation led us here to try and say it differently. Um, but the Taisha that I know that mm-hmm. that uses it prior to ayahuasca ceremonies, he calls it rape. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, that's 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 pretty much the same the same stuff. I don't. Mm-hmm. I think the, the so down in South America and Central America, they're also using rustica. It's only right. in in the southwest they don't have rustica they have nicotiana obtusifolia now this Mm -hmm. is interesting too so i went to arizona with jamie paul lamb shout out to jamie a brilliant astrologer and a brother mason Um, and he took me to it's called uh, deer deer i don't think it's deer park but it's deer something petroglyph park and um we walked all around. It must have been the, the entire area was probably 11 or 12 acres all the way up there. I didn't see any plants. I mean, it's the desert. I, I didn't see hardly anything growing except for like sagebrush. 
when we got to the petroglyphs, which are are already strange looking because they're enormous boulders that no one could move and it would take a group of men to move them and they look stacked it doesn't look it's not a mountain it's a bunch of rocks stacked in a pile just like we see in alabama with the um, the rock pile mounds but they're bigger and all over these stones are these petroglyphs that are um it, at the time were puzzling. I couldn't figure out what I was looking at. Now I know that at least two of those symbols were that moth, the moth that we were talking about earlier, Manduca Sexta. But once I, there's a rope, you know, and you're not supposed to go past that rope. Of course, I, I mean, I jumped the rope and, and I, cause I saw some plants growing underneath each of the petroglyphs, almost like directly under every petroglyph. When I got close enough to see what they were, they were Datura Mattel and Nicotiana Optusifolia, Datura and Desert Tobacco, under every petroglyph. So I thought, well, these must just be native here, I guess. So Jamie and I walked the whole area. We couldn't find a single specimen anywhere else in this desert where we were able to go, only under these petroglyphs. So I asked um, a botanist, a, a friend of mine about it. So I cool. said, you know, what are, what are the chances that this grows only there? And he said, well, those two plants where they drop their seeds, they grow. And I said, well, for how long? For potentially a thousand years or more, if the weather's right, if the climate's right. And so I said, what are the chances that those plants were planted under the petroglyphs? And he said, well, I can't answer that. But if you didn't find them anywhere else in the desert, the chances are probably pretty good. Well, fast forward like two weeks and I run across this article of these archaeologists that were studying the petroglyphs on this 24 mile stretch in New Mexico. And every time they saw one particular glyph, which is a, a triangular, um, a jagged looking glyph, they found mm -hmm. either Nicotiana obtusifolia or Datura mattel. Cool. And so they're, they're thinking this symbol for them is like, this is writing, this is language, and it mm -hmm. indicates these plants. Well, that right. jagged... It's conveying information. Symbol, it, you're right. And that for, for a pre-literate society, it's saying, we see this on the jars too. It's saying this is what the contents of this jar are. But those the jagged um, motif shows up in pottery and Zuni pottery, and it's the mm -hmm. jagged motif that's on the wing of Manduca Sexta. The same exact movement and and motion, a downward kind of movement, and. The Mississippian culture, before it becomes the Mississippian culture, the first real picture we get of it is in a place called Picture Cave. And it's this private cave that was recently auctioned off for like a million dollars. So somebody owns it. It's on private land. But in it is that same jagged pattern, along with um, several other images that we associate with um, the Mississippians, like the Birdman. Um, uh, um, Red Horn, who's also known as Morning Star, with the long nose maskets for earrings. One of his names is He Who Wears Human Heads on His Ears. 
and those long nosed maskettes, those are those twins. He's their father. That shows up there for the first time. Um, and this is eighth century, ninth century, right before the Mississippians happen. But that same jagged pattern is on the wall in there. So absolutely just mind boggling to me. I'm, I'm so enmeshed in this and here for this right now that uh, I can, I can barely keep my mind on anything else. You're doing me a favor by letting me talk. Oh, dude, I, I love this shit. I love learning things. I, people get mad at me. Dude, yeah. I, I'm like dying here. I'm so wrapped up in this. It's so cool. I, uh, people give me a lot of shit. They're like, cause you know, I say I want people to blow my mind, you know, like there's not enough people out mm -hmm. there that are doing like enough research or, um, so it's like some of these fringe communities, I'll say like, who's blowing your mind? And, you know, I'll almost take it down a Socratic method road where I'll ask them a bunch of questions. And then the result is them answering in like, oh, well, there's this person or there's that person, but that person, blah, 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 blah. And you realize like a lot of these people don't know shit, you know? So it's like, <laughs> yeah. um, so when I listen to you talk, first of all, I can look up everything you're saying and, and cross-reference it, and it's everything you're saying is accurate. Um, you know, obviously, aside from your personal research where you'll lay that out within your hypothesis and your book and everything like that, but the dating, the, the timelines, all that kind of wonderful stuff, um, it's not like what you're saying is crazy, but, like, a lot of people don't take it to the level you do. So, I, you know, I love the passion that's why we're doing this series because I want to learn stuff, you know, I don't really, and I'm not saying this to be like cocky or anything, but I don't really talk to that many people where I'm like learning like a ton of new stuff from them. Most of the stuff I learn is from reading books, reading old books, reading dense books, mm -hmm. you know, that kind of reading, you know, you, you and me are kind of similar. Like we read a lot of classical philosophy stuff, stuff about Plato, stuff about, you know, Parmenides, all that kind of theurgy, all oh, that kind of stuff. So it's like, um, again, I want to learn. So if there's nobody bringing anything really new to the table, it's like, whoa, bro, you know, like we just smoked like DMT dog, you know, you know, it's like stuff like that's like, no, I'm good on that. I want to know the cultural aspects of it. I want to know the secret society aspects of it. I want to know about... Yes. Um, the pharmacology, you know, I want to know about all that kind of stuff. So it's just like the bro science stuff. I'm way beyond that. So one of um, one of the things that's so compelling, PD, and hearing you talk, first of all, is I'm a big fan of this kind of rogue scientist approach. You know, the things that we saw with whether Timothy Leary or Alexander Shulgin or John Lilly, right? This willingness. Um, and very internalized sense of curiosity and openness to the varieties of experience. That's as a as a capital R romantic, like hearing you recount this is very very appealing to me because I have such a, a, a curious mind and, and I'm a big fan of experimentation. Um, but also, you know, um, just philosophically speaking, what's really compelling to me is I think when we're talking about science in any sense, it tends to be this very prepositional kind of knowledge in modernity, this idea that it's something to be read and learned about, but not, not actually participated in. And there is, as you were saying, this participatory knowledge or gnosis that's imbued by actually participating in these experiences and ceremonies that far outstrips kind of the material assessment of what's going on. 
And, and mm -hmm. I think that when we're talking about these expansive experiences or psychedelics or meditation or breath work or whatever else, um, there, you can only kind of obliquely get at the heart of these experiences through like literal documentation. Um, there is mm -hmm. this sort of participatory knowledge or, or Gnosticism at the heart of it that can only really be conferred by experiencing it. Mm -hmm. I think that's a pivotal notion too. And in, in, in genuine spiritualities that, that I don't think you can get it unless you dive in a little bit and do it and take it at face value and listen to what they're saying and, and try a good example is um, Palo Mayombe, another thing I'm really into right now. I'm, I'll, I'm taking in my initiation into Palo next month. And in Palo, Beautiful. you're asked to kind of accept a worldview that for modern Westerners is very difficult because everything is centered around the dead. Um, mm -hmm. there's, there's this notion that you're only alive to the degree that the dead flow through you. You're porous. And what animates cool. you is literally your ancestors, which they call Kalunga. Mm -hmm. it's, it's the word they use for the Atlantic Ocean, but it means this mass this. of the anonymous de dead that moves through you and makes you, uh, makes you animate. And mm -hmm. when I first encountered that, I thought, um, am I going to be okay if afterwards, if I accept this worldview, am I going to be able to keep functioning if I think that way, but those are the leaps that have to be made. I really believe that if we want to understand anything about it, um, and with this, this territory, this native American territory, um, like Mike said about the cultural side of it, what, not just the drugs they are using, but the cultural side, well, what they're doing with it is dying this, they're dying. Mm -hmm traveling there. I mean, of course it's ritualized. They're putting on a ritual that you're going through um, nominally what you would go through really if you were dead. And it's to teach you what to do when you die. It's practical to say, because if you don't know, you don't know where to go. You don't know how to do it. And for them, it fascinates, this fascinates me too that knowledge isn't for everyone. Not everyone gets to know what you do when you die. That's initiated knowledge. Mm -hmm. There is a special mm -hmm. place you can get to, but not everybody can get there. You know, that that's very fascinating to me because it, this modern culture that, uh, you know, this, this notion that everything should be free to everybody and there should mm -hmm. be no seats and all the doors should be open. I, I don't think that way at all. I think that, right. that wisdom Same. is is granted. You're Can I give made. you my take on that? And I know you, cause yeah, you yeah. have a different take cause you're in some of these organizations and stuff. An epiphany that I came to was that it's not that this knowledge is being withheld from people from these secret organizations or societies or clubs or whatever it is, uh, mentors, whatever it's, you have to seek it out yourself and through seeking, um, you know, you can't, how am I trying to, it's not about people being kept, kept from knowing it's about, like you said, it's kind of, it's kind of a hybrid of what I'm saying and what you're saying. You're saying, um, 
not everybody's supposed to have that. And I agree, but I think that that comes with what I'm saying, which is you have to seek that knowledge out yourself. You cannot just be given that knowledge. It means nothing to you if you've done nothing to gain that knowledge. Mm -hmm. So when we have a world full of people right now that want everything just handed to them or put down on Google or Wiki or whatever, we're, we're in a place now where it should just be easy in the minds of most people. But in reality, right. um, these topics, whether it be psychedelics, the mind, death, what happens when we die, metaphysics, these are very complicated topics. Um, so we're not putting in the work as a society, and that's what, what we're witnessing is kind of like what you're talking about. I, again, but I don't think it's gatekeepers keeping people out. I think it's people keeping themselves out by just not being interested in the mysteries right. of life kind of a thing. Yeah, part, mm-hmm. part of it is for for the, uh, the protection of the uninitiated. It's not my place mm-hmm. to explode yes. someone's worldview. That, that's that's violent and it's mean and a large mm-hmm. percentage of the secrecy especially in these societies is for the protection of of the person but what mm-hmm. you're saying i think is valid too because when you allow a person like let's take music for example you're a big music fan like i am if 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 I show my brother, I love my brother to death, but if I show him anything, music or something, he's not going to listen to it. He, he, but if he finds it himself, he'll be like, oh man, have you heard this? And I'll say, yeah, I fucking showed you that like two years ago. It, it didn't I know matter. exactly. I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, because it's too, it's too easy. And, I remember and- showing Maurice uh, Umphreys McGee and Ween and same thing with my cousin, Rob. And they were both like, what the fuck is this? And then yeah, later yeah. on, they're like, dude, have you checked out Quebec? Or have you checked out this new? <laughs> I'm like, I'm, but but I, but I don't give them too much shit. Like my cousin Rob got me into Fish, which is like my favorite band now. So it's like, you know, it's a little bit of a back and forth with all that. But I, I completely agree with what you're saying. On the other hand, too, I also used to give guitar lessons. Um, and the kids that learned and learned quickly were the kids that wanted to play the guitar, not the kids whose parents right. made them play the guitar. That was one oh, thing yeah. that I took away from that experience was um, the kids that wanted to learn, like the, they would come be excited, oh, guitar lesson, and I want to learn this song and that song, and I want to do this. And the, those were the kids that actually walked away with something. And, and the kids who right. were just forced to do it, it was just like it was brutal, you know, so... Yeah, and, and al- you think about the way alchemists work and alchemical manuscripts—they give you half truths, and, yes. and giving you a half truth is the biggest gift. It's much more valuable than giving you the whole truth because it's an invitation to discover yourself, to get involved mm-hmm. and figure it out. If there's not a riddle, we don't feel like we've accomplished anything by being handed something. We just set it back down on on a on our shelf. We make a spot for it and a pretty little box, and we say, "Yeah, I know that," you know. But you don't you don't until you are in almost impelled to to figure that out for yourself, and then it means something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I mean, you can you can take that philosophy and apply it to all this stuff. Um, but yeah, I mean, I agree with partly what you're saying and I, obviously there's a reason why those 
whether it be Freemasons or Rosicrucians or any of these uh, organizations or societies or whatever, um, they're trying to preserve, and maybe there's a secrecy aspect to it to preserve those traditions just to not let anybody come in and alter or um, change or becomes a game of telephone or something like that, which I'm sure has mm-hmm. happened to some extent anyways, given time. With masonry, with masonry, the secrecy is, is there, there's a difference in secrets and mysteries. Secrets are just modes of recognition. The, the handshakes, the passwords, the steps, the things that would get you in a lodge, anything mm-hmm. else we can talk about because those are mysteries, which are said in masonry, they say are ineffable. Meaning I, yes. I can't, if you don't have a frame of reference for it, it's not going to mean anything to you. If I tell you the whole thing, it wouldn't matter because those are mysteries different from secrets. Yeah. I, I, I what, think perc- what percentage, stuff. what percentage of Masons would you say are into not necessarily psychedelics, but just these like more metaphysical elements of these traditions because i i've talked to a couple people that made it just seem like it was more of like a beer drinking networking kind of a thing social fraternity social fraternity thank you it's social for sure but the way masonry works number one masonry is a microcosm the ratio of assholes is the same inside as outside no the second point is that when you As become a Mason, below, right? Yep, yep. It's exactly <laughs> the same. The ratio of people who could give a shit is the same inside as outside. So don't think you're going to come mm-hmm. into a lodge and everybody is going to be talking about Kabbalah and alchemy and tarot and Sufism. They're not. Um, is there lodges that are a smaller? Do contain like mostly those types of people, or no? Does that not exist? Yes, there are lodges that 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 put you through hell to get in to make sure that you're the right person they want. And then they have a, a, a club setting of people of like mind, but that's not really what masonry is about. Masonry is supposed to be about people that aren't of like mind, being able to sit next to one another as a brotherhood under a fatherhood of God kind of thing. But, um, but this, the, the, but it, yeah, it's it's the same, really. I mean, I don't, I don't. Uh, I've never been to a lodge uh, where just everyone was in tune. But I don't think they're supposed to be. Uh, masonry is a science of man, and there are so many facets of of, of manliness that I, I think there's plenty of room for people who could care less about any of that other stuff. But the the other point I was going to make is that masonry is like an invitation to a, a banquet. Not everybody is going to eat, and those who do eat aren't going to take a bite of everything. You're you're invited to explore what they're offering you, but you're not made to. What you're made to do is give this mouth to ear, word for word transmission, so that a like you said, we know. It's going to be the same throughout the years. The telephone game won't screw it up. And B, we at least can be sure that 
the, the, the individual Mason has internalized the work to some degree because he's memorized it. Masonry works on catechisms. So after you take your first degree, before you can take the second degree, there are 56 questions and answers that you have to know word for word. If you miss a single word, you don't pass and you have to do it again. Um, and that, that stuff's not written down. You have to meet some old dude at the lodge on his day off and yeah. he tells you all this stuff. Yeah, I told um, you, I remember uh, when we had Randall Carlson on, I think it might have been, we've had him on like three times. It might have been the second episode where he was talking about how going through the rites actually improved his memory because of all oh, the yeah. memorization and everything like that. And through that process, it actually made him like a better researcher too. Absolutely. I had no idea. I could fit all that stuff in there. I mean, I really doubted that was possible, but after going through masonry, I, there's no limit to what I can fit in there and be confident that I can recall it. That masonry also made me more confident in addressing people, um, um, public speaking, you know, cause you're forced to get up and give answers in front of sometimes, you know, 200 men that you don't know, but you, you have to get to a place where you're comfortable with your opinions and whether you're, you're going to piss somebody off no matter what you say. So figure out, just figure out how to articulate it. Don't worry about the responses, but it's helped me a lot, I think. But earlier, you, when you mentioned the cultural aspect of these uses, um, Freemasonry is this death and resurrection ritual, just like we see in theurgy, this death and resurrection ritual. The way that these natives were using these entheogens were in the same context. And they would drink different drugs for each part of this degree structure, for each segment. Um, so this idea comes from first time I read it was this guy named F. Kent Riley III, absolutely brilliant researcher who holds um, an annual or biannual conference at Texas University of different archaeologists and ethnologists and uh, natives trying to just make sense of all of this Mississippi. What did Kent Riley do? He wrote about... Um, he was making the point that these are pre-literate people. <laughs> Never mind. And the, the, you, didn't get the, you said F. Kent Riley. I said, what did Kent Riley? <laughs> Never mind, dude. It was a stupid joke. It was a dad joke. I'm a dad now. What can I say? You are. That's, that is a dad joke. But he, he said, these are like prescription bottles. The prescription bottle mm -hmm. tells you what's in, the, what's in the bottle. And these different pots have different symbols on them. One will be a winged snake. Uh, that's one specific drug. One will be um, a hand with an eye, what looks like an eye in the palm. It's not an eye. It's it's more like a vagina It's or a vulva. It's called an ogi, mm -hmm. which is an old, um, it's a, a, a old English term for, for furniture that has curves on it. But if you put the two together, you get the vesica piscis shape that reminds us of an eyeball and I yeah so lit. somebody posted something a couple of weeks ago about um the petroglyphs that show the ogi in the American uh south mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. they were saying that it looks very Celtic-y because there's that symbols the hand with the eyes 
part of the Celtic. Um, do you think there's any? It's kind of, universal. Yeah, yeah. What, so, so Greg Little you, goes off about that, right? And actually, shout out. We we should have done this earlier, but shout out to Doctor Greg Little. We've had him on the podcast five or six times. Mm-hmm. He's a wealth of knowledge. We've talked about uh, Native American mounds. We did a whole slideshow episode with him and a Patreon. We've done. Uh, episode on Edgar Casey, episode on UFOs, episode on Atlantis, episode he knows so much about so many different things, uh, pharmacology and psychedelics, you name it. But um, I know you've been con- you know you've been in, uh, con- you know been going back and forth with him about a lot of the stuff. And if you're on Twitter, yeah, exactly, pharmacology. I think uh, this was this is the last copy of his drug book. He, uh, if you're on Twitter, follow him on Twitter, uh, Dr. Gregory Little, um, and he's just posting Native American mounds pretty much all day long. So if you like that kind of stuff, I highly recommend it. Um, but yeah, so back to the Ogi. So you think it's just a universal symbol, but it, where do you think? No, I don't. No, no, you don't. Okay, then let's, sorry, I didn't. No, that's what, so in Greg's book, when he's talking about that symbol he says everybody he asked they would say oh the hand and the eye that's a universal symbol you know he'd say but what does it mean and they'd say oh it's a universal symbol it shows up everywhere as a, as though that tells you what it means but it was f kent riley's group that determined that finally figured out what it means and what it is is remember i said in theurgy they have these two portals in the sky Mm-hmm. One of those portals is is near the constellation of Orion, what the Greeks recognize as Orion. But, of course, that's a Greek conception. The natives don't see Orion when they look at the sky, but they do see pictures. They do see myths in the stars. And what they see at what is Orion's belt, they see as a wrist that's been cut off of a hand, a severed hand. They call it the chief's hand. That's right. That's right. Now I remember. And that's what is hanging there. And in this, in this native model, once you die, first off, that there's this serpent that rules the sky during the summer. He's this horned winged serpent that if he if you try to enter this portal during the summer he'll snatch you up and take you to the underworld so they don't even tell stories about this serpent during the summer because he'll hear you but during the winter and this serpent is scorpio they they see what the greeks saw as a scorpion they see as this winged snake but in the winter it never comes above the horizon at night so you never see scorpio during the winter. So this is the time that they would do their funeral rites. They would deflesh the bodies and store the bones until the right time, which was this mm-hmm. winter solstice point. And they'd take these bones up. Um, we got to talk about this after there's some, this is a synchronicity. Cool. Um, the only orb, <laughs> Thing I've seen in the sky actually took place within Scorpio um, at the end of October, which was kind of weird. You're saying what you're saying right now because it yeah, was right on right on the horizon. But we'll talk about that later. Uh, sorry, go ahead. Uh, the funeral rites, winter solstice. So they do this funeral in the winter, and this funeral is what they're taught if they're initiated. 
if they haven't been through it, they can do what's called a ghost lodge in Midewiwin, where somebody can fill in for you and do it. So they become psychopumps, basically, that guides the soul through this journey. Cool. And there are at least two or three different charters where they're, they're talking about how the soul has to be launched like an arrow, shot like an arrow towards the chief's hand and into the Ogi or OG. You'll see it pronounced different both ways. Once you get through there, that's how you get on the Milky Way. The Milky Way is what they call the path of souls. This is exactly what happens in theurgy. And there are different explanations for it. But in, in Plato, Plato talks about how the ecliptic, that we'll say this is the ecliptic, the, which is where the planets and the sun rise in the east and set in the west, make their circle around the earth, which would be here in the center. Well, crossing that is the Milky Way. And it makes what Plato calls an, an X, because if you see it from the side, it's a big X. But as the Milky Way is wrapped around the ecliptic, of course, there are two points where they connect. Those two points are those portals. And Porphyry calls them the gates of the moon and the gates of Saturn, because he's Hellenistic. He's using um, tropical astrology and he fixes things and just like tropical astrology uses fixed positions. So he fixes them and they're actually in the wrong places in Porphyry. Um, Manilius corrects him and says, you know, where they actually are. And Manilius is he, what the explanation he gives is identical to the one you read in Egyptian book of the dead and the coffin texts and the pyramid texts, as well as in Babylonian systems. One mm -hmm. gate is near Taurus. One gate is near Scorpio. There's a great monograph by a researcher named George Latura Becke called Visible Gates in Pagan Skies. Order that if you don't have it. It's super cheap. It, it has everything but the Native American model because I don't think he was aware of it. But it goes through the Greek, Egyptian, and uh Babylonian models and shows how they're all about getting into this gate and onto the Milky Way. But that's what they're doing with this. So it, 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 the natives, they're waiting until winter and then they perform this ritual and they face west. And right before sunrise, Orion, the chief's hand, comes to the horizon. Uh, and it's almost like the way the Egyptians put it is Osiris. The Orion is Osiris for them. Osiris is standing on the earth. And that's when you assume the form of Orion, of Osiris, and then you can enter the underworld with him. Assuming the form is like, uh, if you're familiar with the Golden Dawn, they have assumption of God forms, which mm -hmm. is basically... You imagining right. that you are this deity sitting in positions like him. So they're becoming mm -hmm. it this way. The natives are shooting themselves into it. And that's interesting. And for another reason, because like in Cahokia, they would bury the dead with these tiny little arrow points that are impossible to shoot. They're, they're less than an inch long. Um, 
but they're carved in the shapes of morning glory and datura leaves. I'm not making this up. Ooh. This is from Timothy Pocketet's new book. Dude, I don't guy. believe you, bro. <laughs> <laughs> I get that a lot. But Pocketet, he uh, he just wrote this book called Gods of Thunder and shows um, side by side these points with these leaves. The souls are, are re represented by these arrowheads and the arrowheads represent psychedelic plants. Cool. But they shoot it. The soul is to be shot like an arrow into that constellation, into the Ogi. Once it goes through there, it goes down a little ways because the way the the way the Milky Way moves isn't it's not like a perfect cross this way. It's at an angle. So you gotta go down a little ways and then you jump off, you take an exit and get on the Milky Way. And it takes you all the way around to the ecliptic where the sun rises. So you you're you're entering the west, riding the Milky Way around, coming up with the sun and the ecliptic where you meet um, this bird figure at the top of the heavens, which is the Cygnus constellation. Mm -hmm. This is mainly what Greg Little's book is about. This process. Each of these figures we're talking about, the hand with the eye, the bird man symbol, all of these are on different cups, symbols on different cups. According to Riley, different drugs go in each one of them. So when you join this sodality this little this medicine society which is it's only the Medawiwin for the ojibwa but medicine sodalities existed in lots of different cultures and one of the main ones that that uh george e langford talks about is the the moundville medicine society and moundville is where all of these symbols show up and it looks like they're using moundville, moundville becomes a necropolis it's a booming city like Cahokia or Spyro, but eventually they stop building, people move away, and they only meet there for funerals. The people doing the funerals are this secret society that know how to get there, how to get to the, the, the lodge in the sky, basically. But each of the pots, so you take your first degree, you're going to, it's going to have to do with the first step on that path, the going, the hand and the eye. And that's on several of these pots. You take the next step. It, it, it depends on the region. Some of them have dogs that you have to deal with in between. And some of them have uh, uh, snakes that you have to um, coax with magic words into laying down and becoming a log bridge. So you could cross this river. But what we're seeing with these pots, with these images on them, are literally descriptions of not only the pl the place they're meant to propel you to the experience they're meant to induce, but also the drug they contain. Mm -hmm. So when you talk about the cultural side of this, it's very rich, you know, and it's a death culture. It's a funeral culture. It's an mm -hmm. ancestral kind of culture. Yeah, it's fascinating. Um, Leah, I know you got to get out of here soon. Did you have any specific questions for PD before you bounce out? You know, honestly, I don't. Partly because, very candidly, this is an area I don't know very much about. 
Um, although I'm loving the discussion about how some of this maps to Western esotericism, I'm very much a child of the Rosicrucians, of the AA, of the OTO, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so that's really fascinating for me. I'm always extremely fascinated by the perennialist nature of so many of these things um, and how this shows up, whether it's in everything from DNT and ayahuasca experiences through um, deliberate practices. Um, but I, I also, I, I did just wanna personally uh, say a couple of things about something you talked about earlier, which is about the kind of violence and cruelty associated with non-consensually disrupting people's ontology. Um, and this is something as I've gotten deeper and deeper into my own practices um, of both formal and informal nature, um, these are insights and learnings or knowledge that unwind core parts of one's identity. It sort of mm -hmm. reminds me of an ego death experience where having had them, I understand that now completely how and why these ego death or ego dissolution experiences or sort of ontological breakdowns are extraordinarily traumatic for people that are particularly um, wedded to uh, materialist interpretations of reality or also are fundamentally um, unprepared for how monumental these experiences can be. Um, but I will also say on the other side of that, the good side of that, is that if you are ready for these experiences or you think you're ready, um, they're some of the most uh, overwhelmingly incredible and ecstatic and uh, numinous experiences available to the human experience. Um, and I can say pretty categorically as someone who was on that like atheist, materialist, whatever starting place, all the way through like deep woo, like living probably 90% in that universe and 10% in like the real world. Um, it's uh, it makes you feel like you're seeing in color for the first time. Um, mm -hmm. It's completely worth it. So I, I just I just say all of that to say that so much of what you're saying resonates. I feel like I'm learning so much just from listening to you, um, and I genuinely hope that our paths cross in the future because I'd love to talk to you more about this work. Oh well, thank you. That that one that that's that's what I do it for is you know like Lily Leary said, meet the others, find the others. Yes. Uh, I do I do this to find the others uh, for a genuine sense of kinship and um, it is special. Yes, very very special. Mike, thank you so much for facilitating. And you're this, for you're me to welcome. Every time we do one of these, you're welcome. I mean, whatever we can fit. Oh, I'll five be back, people dude. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I will certainly be back for the next round. Um, both of you, gentlemen, enjoy your evening. Thank you so much for having me again. Um, oh, of course. So, of yeah. And if anybody's Thank interested, you, you can please follow Leah on Twitter at Leah Prime. Uh, I have her link to her website down below. She does an excellent series on her YouTube channel called The Invisible Night School, where they go through uh, the UFO UAP phenomenon uh, and take, you know, they look at skeptical approaches on top of, you know, some of the believers and kind of see what's going on. It's a really interesting uh, format. And then also she does a sub stack that you should check out as well. So, but yeah, thank you so much again, Leah. And I'm sure the Mind Escape listeners will see you sooner than later. Take care, gentlemen. Thanks, Bye. Um, so, yeah. So, uh, in terms of what we were talking about, so we were talking about, like, Path of Souls. Um, you know, you were talking about the metaphysics 
And, and again, if you're looking for visual of what PD was describing, we actually we did a slideshow episode with Dr. Greg Little uh, a couple years ago, but we did a Patreon segment specifically on the metaphysics of Native Americans, specifically kind of what he's talking about, um, and the ogi and the hand and uh, the underworld. And, you know, he, there's actually some visual representation of that too, I think we. So if you're interested, you can go check that out. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that, um, for me, the most interesting aspect of all this is the crossover, right? Like, um, obviously different cultures and tribes and peoples ha- and groups have different takes on different things, but this Misawaska, um, idea is interesting to me from this standpoint that, so, I mean, I'm sure you know, I'm fascinated with Soma. We've been doing a series on it, and I talk about it on a lot of episodes as well as the Eleusinian Mysteries and all that kind of stuff. Um, with the Soma stuff, you have a migration break-off, which the Indo-Iranian break-off, which some go to Northwest India, create the Rig Veda, the Vedic cultures, um, and create Soma. And then you have the other break-off going towards Iran. They end up creating the Avesta, and they have Homa or Haoma. Now, yeah, so when you have something like that, it's 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 hard not to believe that that's not happening in other places in the world with entheogenic and traditions. Second you move or migrate to a new area or ecosystem or whatever, you have different flora and fungi and different things available. Um, so is that, do you think that maybe these people migrated up through South America? Cause I know from talking with Dr. Greg, some of the mounds in South America are way older than the North American mounds. Mm-hmm. And in South America we have, clear evidence of San Pedro <laughs> use going back 3,000 years. They found that fox snout mm-hmm. pouch that had uh, uh, bufotenin and uh, harmaline and coca leaves. In the, in the southwest, particularly a place called Chaco, Chaco Canyon, they found an entire cache of these... Um, Oh, by the way, there's a documentary on Netflix right now called Ch- it's about Chaco Canyon. If anybody's oh, got Netflix, check it out. It's it's fucking awesome. I remember in high school learning about the Sun Dagger, the way that they track the movements and the solstices and everything. Like the sun peaks in this one little spot uh, once a year. It's pretty fascinating. Anyway, sorry, go on. It's amazing, amazing. And uh, Timothy Pocketet calls it Cahokia's lunar twin because they base a lot of their building orientations on lunisticies, which is like a solstice, but it's the lunar version. It's a 18.6 year cycle that they had figured out and kept up with. And um, it looks like they believe that cycle had something to do with um, rain cycles and their ability to grow maize. But they found a, a cache of cylinder jars at Chaco when they tested them, they were positive for cocoa. Now, cocoa is Central American, ultimately South Americans. At some point, South Americans brought them up and planted them in Central America, and they were able to grow there. But they found cylinder jars that were identical to the ones used in South and Central America for this cocoa ritual that they would do. Not only that, they found mummified macaws 
macaw birds, South American and Central American, the red parrot looking birds they found there. So we know they were coming up from the South, but through DNA evidence and through uh, uh, geological evidence, we also know they were coming in through the North from Mongolia and Siberia through the Bering Strait and entering that way. So it's both. I mean, they're coming from both sides. And when you compare the, the metaphysics of all of these Southeastern, Southwestern natives, they're remarkably similar. When you compare them to what was, what's being described about what was happening um, in Siberia, Mongolia, the Tungus tribe, it is overwhelming. Uh, there's even a book on it by Grimm where he looks at... Uh, Ojibwe Midewiwin, that ceremony we were talking about in terms of Siberian shamanism per uh, Mersha Iliadi and even more recent uh, sources. What do, you, what do you think about that? What do you think about the whole um, Amanita Muscaria uh, potentially being obviously the... Um, the Siberian shamans supposedly used it's it. And used, it's used in the Native American systems also. Right. So, um, so, but what do you think about that as a compound being, um, as being, you know, some, obviously some people point at Soma because of Wasson. I don't think that that's the case, but stuff like that. Like I've never had, I've tried Amanita twice. I tried a tincture and I tried eating some dried, um, caps because you have to decarboxylate it to convert the ibotanic acid into muscimol or else you're doing yourself a neurotoxic uh, um, displeasure um, you, you can't just eat them you no. can but it's not going to be pleasant no. um, the way to the way to do it and Clark Heinrich did the best job of describing how to use them that I know of in his book um, magic mushrooms and religion and alchemy uh, he wrote the foreword to my first book, but he talks about how it's an alchemical process. They have to, not only do you have to choose mature specimens because as they age, they convert some of that ibotenic acid into muscimol. They also have to be dried. Once they're dried, more is converted. Then they have to be heated. Yeah, like Once cracker heated, dry too, not like kind of dry. dry. They have to be like cracker dry. Crispy, yep. And fired is is what he, the way he says they have to be fired and then after that then you make a tea with it which helps convert even more so the the name of the game is converting ibotenic acid to muscimol um and you know as far as the the identification of soma we'll probably never know what soma was but there have been a lot of really great arguments wasson has some great points he has some really shitty points chris bennett has some great points he has some points that i'm like eh, not so much but chris's book is brilliant if you haven't read his book and you're still on the fence about the soma thing you have to read it yeah um but and there's another um cannabis uh, and the soma solution and yeah we had him on as part one of the what was soma series part two with matthew clark who has the ayahuasca analog yeah, hypothesis. Case, uh, hypothesis yeah, yeah. so 
and he but he's the one that told me he didn't think that the Egyptian strains of acacia didn't have DMT in them. So I don't know. I mean, again, that's that what that's what makes your research that's much more appealing to me is you're willing to actually try these compounds and concoctions. You know what I'm saying? Like if you wrote a book on the Eleusinian mysteries, I have no doubt you'd be out there trying to figure out how to get all the neurotoxic shit out of the uh, ergot. <laughs> so we've, we've already been been slowly working with ergot. I'm the last sure. 10 years, I'm to sure. What to do with? Um, but he's absolutely wrong. Um, I appreciate what, what what you're doing, Matthew, but there are absolutely active acacia species. Nilotica is active. Um, if you don't believe me, try 10 grams with some pig what about, and call from, from my own research on the sum of things, I don't want to go too much into this because we're focusing on other stuff, but my takeaway was Soma just meant psychedelic along with ceremony or ritual kind of like saying psychedelic now theory that mike crowley wrote secret drugs and buddhism and he's got another book coming out i think called psychedelic buddhism but he doesn't he's not talking about soma he, he is but he ties it into amrita and 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 his argument amrita is any substance that will induce a numinous experience well i so i take it, it back to i've read that book i didn't get that takeaway from i mean I, I i'm not disagreeing with what you're saying i'm just saying my point is though is like what i was saying about soma how you have the break off well there's no way that the part of that those people landed in during the indo-iranian migrations the people that landed in iran are not going to have the same flora as the people that landed in northwest right. india so you have to problem. make do it's with what with, yeah with eons of use and in dealing with nomadic cultures spontaneously nomadic cultures and climate changes it's not going to be the same drug there are going to be what carl ruck called surrogates they're going to find a surrogate for what they once had but no longer do um so I, when it comes to soma i truly believe it's a number of things depending on which people which time you know which location they found that mural too. Those Russian archaeologists found that mural of two people Mongolian. holding them. Yeah, the mushroom over the fire or whatever. Which in the Mongolian, that's right there with this Siberian kind of a movement. I don't know if you've read Peter Kingsley's book, A Story Waiting to Pierce You. Read that if you haven't. It ties the whole Mongolian Siberian shamanic thread into theurgy and pre mainly pre-Socratic. Uh, Greek philosophy is that right. real too? the fact that the Siberian shamans drink the reindeer piss is that or is that a true well, I don't I, I've never been there so I can't I <laughs> yeah. mean I don't I don't I take everything with with a shaker of salt yeah I, I mean I try it myself and I'm not about to drink some reindeer <laughs> I got I got some you know I harvest every year we get uh Amanitum yeah which are our version what's the one um stamets was talking about his uh i think it was panthera Amanita Pan um oh yeah pantherina yeah from when he was talking about but he had, that sounded like not the most pleasant experience <laughs> I mean, at it, all. it works if you're if you're if you're ready to commit suicide because life is so terrible by all means eat some pantherina first but i wouldn't do it in, unless it was something like that but the piss thing, you know, that even shows up in Native American uh, teachings. In the Ojibwe, there was an Ojibwe 
um, an elder of the Crane clan of the Ojibwe named Kiwe Dinakwe Pascal. Um, she wrote a couple of books that are extremely rare. They, the used copies sell for a thousand dollars, but in this, she tells the story of Miscuedo and it's these two brothers. One's depressed. One's not. And the one that isn't disappears and comes back. And it turns out that he's been eating these red mushrooms with white spots. And he tells them that if, if they'll drink his urine, uh, it's been so long since I read the actual story, but it's, it says, drink the urine and you'll, you'll be happy. You won't be sad. You won't be depressed like you are if you drink this urine. Wasson quotes it at one point. Um, I was totally dismissive of this. I thought, who who in the hell is this? You know, she, what she, she read Wasson and now she just wants to claim this for the Native Americans. No, she's, she's dead serious. I, I mean... I haven't found other tellings of the Mesquito story, but I've found other examples of Amanita muscaria use. Um, there's one in, in this book, both of these books here, um, Chippewa Customs, which the Chippewa, Chippewa is the other pronunciation pronunciation of Ojibwa, Jibwa, Chippewa. Is that the, tri I think that's was my area too michigan or what was that maybe michigan that was a different michigan minnesota um the great lakes region yeah yeah i thought that sounded because we have a lot of chip in michigan uh, there's a lot of chippewa a lot of schools are named chippewa there's a lot of uh chippewa stuff mm -hmm. i can see that i think my screen's lagging a little bit but this yeah, wisconsin chippewa made some tales um, both of those books talk about the use of Amanita muscaria, one for a love potion. Um, another talks about, uh, the shaman who liked to burn them and breathe the smoke. And then there's a third example where when, when they die, they are taking the mushroom, powdering it and mixing it with that same vermilion hunters powder and painting mushrooms on their face. And this is allegedly how they paint all of their dead at this time with, with PLI, the mushroom caps here, and then stems going this way. Um, so that's, that's three examples of Amanita Muscari, four of Amanita Muscari use within the Ojibwe. I, I mean, when I go camping outside. in Northern, Northern Michigan, they're everywhere. You can't walk throughout the woods without seeing a ton right. of Amanita. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm just trying to think my experience though, does not reconcile a lot of what I've read, um, from like the Rig Veda. Like if you're saying that Soma was, you know, Amanita, I don't, I don't buy, it. I don't really make that connection. Amanita mm -hmm. bonds to, it, it bonds to GABA receptors. Right. And that's the same thing Alcohol alcohol bonds too. So, right. Uh, you know, it's not that. But My experience was this. It wasn't even hallucinogenic. It was made me very tired, almost like a hypnotic, and then made me yeah. very sleepy. The only thing I could th that that my my mind goes to is maybe this is because I had very vivid dreams, and I usually don't dream that much because of my cannabis use. Um, That's how it works. 
Yeah. You have dreams. It doesn't cause visual well, that's, hallucinations. Well, that's, that was my confusion. But there's people telling me, no, 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 you got to do it this way. You, gotta, you haven't done it right. So I keep oh, hearing yeah. that, and I'm trying to think, was there something wrong with me or my biochemistry? There is something, something wrong with you, but it doesn't have anything to do with it. Uh, no, but, so, but that was my thing. That was my takeaways. It had very vivid dreams, which were interesting, but not nothing uh, prophetic or had epiphanies or anything like I do on other tryptamine based psychedelic not not what young called a, a big dream right yeah yeah my my experience with it has always been mild um but with someone like me who grew up taking you know drinking a third of a vial of acid when i you know in my teens and taking 20 and 30 grams of cubensis mushrooms in my teens and 20s I'm not sure that I would, I'm not sure it would do that for me because my frame of reference is bigger. It's bigger. And, you know, I know what's possible with those substances and, and I'm skeptical that Amanita for someone with my history can ever meet that level, but I'm open. You know, I'm open, obviously, I still pick them and I still prepare them. And my thing, what I like to do is, is infuse them in wine and um, just sip on it. I read about a ritual, I think it was in Ruck, Ruck and Hoffman, where they were talking about um, who were the peacock worshippers in, in Iran, the peacock god. Um, I can't, I'll remember in a minute, but, uh, but they, he claims that they would go up on the roof of their house every morning and take a sip of this wine that's been infused with these mushrooms. And I have a friend who is Siberian, descends from Siberians. And he claimed that his grandfather would put the mushrooms in vodka. They were Russian, but they descended from Siberians. He claimed they would put them in vodka, but he would only take a tiny amount and he would do this every night. Uh, but he didn't say it was a hallucinogen. He claimed it was a medicine. And, and that's actually how you saw it marketed in, um, in Germany back in the 19th century. You could buy Amanita muscaria medicines that, that are unheard of now. But they seem to have thought that it had some kind of a medicinal value, almost like with old folks here in the South that would drink um, sassafras tea, you know, sassafras contains saffron, which is a precursor to MDMA. Mm -hmm. um, and it was outlawed, I think, for that reason. Um, the reason that was the, the peacock god was a Malek, M-E-L-E-K. Malek, that's the god, but yeah. the, it's, it's actually an owl god, Malek Taos, but the group the Yazidis. This says it's a yeah. The Z Yazidis is the the. I thought you were looking for the actual name, but the Malek, and then no, it's the it's Yazidis, called the Peacock the, Angel of that. The peacock Angel Malek Taos is actually an owl, but it's but it, it's confused with this peacock. If maybe I'm wrong, but I, I I'm pretty certain Malek Taos is an owl deity. I know Malek is an owl deity that's, um, but I don't know if that's the same. I don't know. I haven't done enough. I didn't even it, know about this peacock guy. I got to look into this root. more. Yeah. It's the same root, but the, the Malek Taos, um, this peacock angel is basically Lucifer. And 
anybody who's done DMT or high doses of psilocybin immediately recognizes the peacock's tail. Uh, it, it's um, in alchemy, it's called cauda pavonis. And cauda pavonis means tail of the peacock. And if you see the tail of the peacock in your alchemy, in your work, you know you've arrived. That's the last, the last sign that you're about to break through and and have success with your with the stone. If you don't see the peacock's tail, you're you're not close. And just that's so how, anybody freaks out and, and gets all weird, Lucifer literally means, um, you know, uh, morning star. Um, you know, which is a Native American deity, also. Morning right. Star. So, so before people, if you're religious, before you freak out, uh, go look into the origins of Satan, Lucifer. They're all different, and these are just anthropomorphized concepts of what people see as evil. However, their origins aren't evil at all, so it makes no sense. It's almost like it's crazy that people uh, abide by this stuff. So. Um, you know, dogmatically, because n apparently none of those people have done any of their homework. So go look into the origins. Um, obviously, I don't even think Lucifer shows up in the Bible. I think no. I think the word is Lucifuge in yeah. Isaiah, Lucifer, and but Lucifer has just kind of taken on a life of its own. The whole thing's stupid. Like I said, I grew up Catholic. I went to Catholic schools, uh, church twice a week. I'm a good person. Uh, however, <laughs> uh, there's so many dogmatic religious people. Yeah, exactly. Somebody put light bear. Exactly. Light bear, morning bringer, morning star. Uh, <laughs> you know, the, the thing about all of that is, again, do your homework. If you want to really do great research, start at the root. Or going back to the earliest known reference, whether it's a person or a passage or whatever, and work your way from there. Because then you're at least going back to the first known instance of this, so you can look at the progression and how it's evolved and how it was used. That's doing That's right. great research. Doing bad research is reading just the Bible or just watching a YouTube video or just you know watching one documentary and thinking you know all about a subject or something along those yeah. lines. Google Google is not your friend, by the way. If you want to be a researcher, Google can be a good Google can be a resource, yeah. but don't make that your primary resource. No, uh, go ahead and get ready to get become poor and broke buying books <laughs> because the books that have anything that's worth reading in them are going to cost 70 150 $250. That's where it's at right now. What if you can find it in Barnes and Noble, you don't want to fucking read it. it there's nothing in every, uh, someone told me this once that if, if you can buy it in a store, it's a beginner book and they're right. If it's in a store, it's for beginners. The, the, the meaty texts that are going to have this kind of stuff in it, get ready to spend a hundred to $150. Every and book on this Go follow PD here. on Facebook right now and Instagram because he's constantly selling these books that he's already read. These expensive ass yep, books, I and have I'm to sure. Sell them, buy them. And he's he's charging less than what they're worth, and they're worth a lot. So again, yep, follow I PD. Have to sell them to buy them. Yeah, yeah. Follow. I I post mainly post about things that interest me and the books I'm selling. So if you're interested in buying books, definitely. 
definitely follow me because I, I sell hundreds every year. And cross-reference things. If you're going to search something on Google, also go check other servers and check, you know, even, you know, I look, there's stuff wrong with, um, you know, chat GPT does, isn't always accurate, especially with opinion-based things, but I've typed some things into it and it can pull up facts and factual information and papers and references and quotes and things like that. So again, try and get creative with your research, spread it around, look at multiple, look into books, look into, um, ancient texts, um, look into, if you look at ancient texts, don't just look at ancient texts, but then read every translation you can get, because there might be like, for instance, if you read Plato's dialogues, um, you know, whether it's, uh, transcribed from Latin or ancient Greek or whatever, some of the words have different meanings or might have other multiple meanings and things like that. So to actually really dive deep into it, they always suggest that you read multiple translations. So same kind of a thing. You just cross-referencing like a ton of things here. Yeah. The older it is, the more translations you want to read. I ran into this problem with my the book that's about to come out on theurgy because you can't really talk about theurgy without talking about the pre-Socratics because what, what the theurgists did was reorientate the direction of travel. Prior to Plato, everybody went to the underworld traveled to the underworld after Plato because Plato allegorized that underworld journey as incarnation as so as as if to say when we fell from divinity and became in a body that is going to hell after that there's nowhere else to go or as far as we can go the the orientation changes and everybody wants to go up but in order to talk about that intelligently i couldn't just read one translation of parmenides i had to read every translation of parmenides and even that wasn't enough i had to get a a a greek lexicon and dictionary and then start translating it myself you know um the older it is spoil alert he thinks your senses lie to you Parmenides has this, uh, you know, he, he, he's considered the father of logic. This, this is one, one thing that really fascinates me prior to his introduction of logic of logos, everything turned on a pivot of mythos. So we take logic for granted. We say, we can look at someone in the street and what they're doing, and we can just say without even doing any calculations, we can say, well, that's, that behavior is or is not logical. Before Parmenides, this wasn't a thing. What determined the rightness or wrongness of a behavior was how well it conformed to a pre-existing myth. What myth are you participating in? What myth are you embodying? If you're wrong, it was because you weren't in line with a myth. Well, Parmenides claims to have gotten this information from a goddess in the underworld after going into a trance and traveling to the underworld. I can't think of any other scenario that would be the direct opposite of logic. That's not logical to go to the underworld and talk to a goddess and get the laws. Peter Kingsley famously said, you know, Moses went to the top of Mount Sinai 
to bring back the law, but Parmenides went to hell to bring him back. But the law he brought back was logic that completely rules out any trip to hell, any goddess. That's not logical. But And again, we talked about this last time. I think the Eleusinian Mysteries, Osiris, all these people being taken into the underworld, this is an allegory for shamanic experience. Um, and it plays out more unveiled, I guess, in the New World or Mesoamerica, right? It's not as like... I have- like like it's, they, it's here, it, it, it's here it became secretive too, but it became secretive once uh, the Colombians, uh, the uh, Europeans came and started to colonize and all that kind of you stuff. Heard of Spyro, Spyro, Oklahoma. We mentioned it earlier. Yeah, you mentioned with Spyro. the where those seashells are from. Spyro, I believe, is our Eleusis. That's where ninety percent of these shell cups show up. That test positive for at least Datura and Cassina, the Ilex vomitoria. I'm certain more of them test positive for other plants, the same plants. That Have you tried those two botanical. specifically together, those two compounds? Yeah. Yeah. What, I mean, I go, a... I go really light with Datura. I try. I, well, yeah. I'm, it's very I, neurotoxic. Like you, I, have, I have a child. <laughs> so, you know, before my son was born, my youngest son, before he was born, I was pretty adventurous with what I did and how I did it. But with the Datura, um, I'm very leery about ingesting it. I actually prefer. Yeah, you showed us last time that ointment or whatever. Ointments. This is if you're going to do Datura. And, and Datura grows everywhere, by the way. It's probably in your backyard if you live in the Midwest or uh, out west. Um, it's this like is Kobe uh, Michaels uh, blend. By the it's way. It, it's a common weed that just grows all over the place in the United States. Yeah, yeah. There are different strains. Um, it shares a lot of alkaloids with uh, other nightshades. Some of the alkaloids that are in Datura are in Nicotiana rustica and Obtusifolia. Some of this it shares some with um, black nightshade. Remember Leah. Um, before we started the show, we were talking about opium lettuce. Uh, opium lettuce has hyoscyamine in it, which is one of the things that makes Datura active. Uh, so a lot of these share these alkaloids. But what I was getting at with Spyro, Spyro, I really believe is our Eleusis. Um, so Cahokia was the first really big Mississippian city to to appear and it 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 was able to appear because of climate change the climate became such that corn could be grown and someone gave them a sacred bundle this is how religions were passed around beliefs were passed around in what they called sacred bundles patakas and they received the the maize pataka with the maize goddess in it who is also known as evening star and earth mother May's mother. Um, and this allows Cahokia to become the first major American city. Well, all of a sudden around, I don't know, I think the 14th century, it's abandoned. They stop building, people disappear, and they don't come back for a long time. But right around that time that they disappear, Spyro starts happening. 
Moundville starts happening, these things further south. Now archaeologists know that this has to do with the Little Ice Age. The Little Ice Age caused a major drought, and because they depended so heavily on what they received from that sacred bundle of this maize goddess, they depended on corn to survive. They didn't know what to do. They didn't know how to move forward. Well, the Mississippians, even though they were mound builders, mounds existed before them, built by the Adena and Hopewell cultures. What they would do was return to these sites that were already sacred and build on top of them, embellish them, and turn them into other things. This happened in Spyro. In Spyro, the great mound there is called Craig Mound, which is before Spyro's discovery was surrounded with um, paranormal activity. One of the woman who lived there, Aunt Rachel Brown, she claimed to have seen heard noises that woke her from her sleep. And she looked out at the mound and there were blue sheets of fire coming off of it. And these cats, g giant cats pulling a, a, a chariot around in circles on the top strange stuff they were they were seeing even before they knew what it was but this was something it, before the mississippians got there the hopewell had already buried all of these elite people there and they called that the great mortuary well when the mississippians arrived they kind of flattened it out and they built a floor with these these poles that were faced north and south. Now, with the Mississippian culture, north and south means the realm of the dead. East and west is the realm of life. Um, the Milky Way, it's because the Milky Way, the path of souls, is on a north-south axis. So they built this floor, and then on top of it built something that's now called a spirit lodge. And the spirit lodge had these different pipes Pipe, big pipes that were carved out of uh, 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 flint, out of um, clay flint. And they are effigies of various supernaturals, various deities in the, this tradition. Well, what they eventually realized after studying this Pawnee Skiddy, it's called the Skiddy Sky Map. It's a, it's like a turtle, it looks like a turtle shell with with spots all over it that represent stars. And then a kind of a line moving through it that represents the Milky Way. James Brown, not the not the singer, but the famous archeologist, Mississippian archeologist, James Brown. After studying the Spirit Lodge and the placement of these items in there, he realized they're in the exact placements of these constellations on this Pawnee Skitty sky map. And it represents, they were able to determine through, through a computer program that reverses the skies and how they looked through the generations, that this was a picture of the sky at the moment of what they thought was the moment of creation in the, and I believe the 1600s. Um, and it was identical to this. So the spirit lodge which is where they found 90% of the shell cups that survive that have Datura and this other 
Ilex vomitoria, and I'm certain other compounds in them like Morning Glory, Black Shade, and Misihuasca. They found them there. And Riley talks about how that the great mortuary represents the underworld and the spirit lodge on top represents the heavens. And that's why the deities are placed there. He further says that the drugs smoked through these pipes are meant to animate them. Just like with theurgy, we have animated statues. He says the act of smoking the drug through the, through the God, because the pipes are made in the effigy of these gods animates them and makes them present with you during the ritual this this is still persists today with um peace pipes that'll be made of eagle effigies which are thunderbirds or bear effigies but mercia iliadi for example he talks about in illo tempore which means in that time any ritual even in masonry, these rituals are meant to take us back to square one, to ground zero, before the fall of man, when everything was perfect. Even in masonry, when we're initiated, Genesis is recited before we're brought to light and the blindfold is taken off. Because that's the cre that's, we're being recreated. That's the goal of the ritual. And that's what they think the spirit lodge was about. It's setting up the spirit lodge that represents ground zero for the entire world. And they needed, they needed to do this because of this drought situation. Things had been terrible for 20 or 30 years because of this little ice age drought. People were starving to death. They, they just weren't making it there. So their, their inclination was, Let's restart time. That's uh, how Eric Singleton puts it. Um, he's, he's the uh, curator at the National um, Cowboy and Western Heritage Museum in uh, Oklahoma. But he says they needed to restart time. And this is where they find all these cups and these pipes. My yep. suspicion is that's our elusis. That's where people, Mississippians, were coming from all over. The country we know they were because the things deposited there aren't from spyro none of them are the pipes are from cahokia the shells are from florida but they're all coming to spyro entering the spirit lodge for an experience of participation in zero mark going back to square one to try and re reverse the drought reverse whatever they did that they in their minds that caused this but uh, and that's that's what i'm that's one of the main arguments of my book is that yeah i mean it's spiral, it's, it's interesting right because you know the placebo effect um we don't know much about like psi even though you look at the weird stuff that they've done with like random number generators and you just wonder how much intention and belief um, play into oh, yeah. it and, and I think that there's like belief as in like you've done your homework you've got a true heart and then belief that you're just using something as an excuse to be a certain way or go about yourself in a certain way which is what you see most dogmatic religious people do but wow. I think that I think that there's a way to go about that that is pure that does have pure intentions and true 
uh, true of heart. But my question was, I actually was going to ask you before you went into the whole effigy pipe thing, I was going to ask you about that because Dr. Little's going on a, 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 a run right now where he's just posting crazy amounts of effigy pipes on Twitter. Um, what exactly was being smoked out of it? Was it just uh, tobacco or tobacco rustica? Was it cannabis? Was it endonatherous seeds? Like what was being smoked out of those? So the um, out of Arkansas, there was what they call smoking tubes, which we we would call a chillum. Um, when they tested those residues, all they were able to detect was tobacco and datura. So we know both of those were smoked. That's what was mentioned in the ethnography I talked about earlier. So people, um, that, so you the, what? The you dry out the de, the datura and smoke it. Right, right. They were because smoking. I know it's orally active, and I've even heard anecdotal oh, stories of people like cutting it. down large portions of it in their backyard and then getting seeped seeped into their like cuts and things That's like that. Brugmansia. So yeah. the, fir- the first time my wife and I we found a Brugmansia tree, and it was in the the yard of this shoe store in Tupelo, Mississippi, called Peggy's Shoes. They're not there anymore, but. Every year, this old lady, sweet old lady, would plant these Brugmansia trees. She had the Brugmansia aria. She had she had the pink, the white, the the yellow. Once we realized what those were, we went by and we just started picking flowers and leaves. And you know, our plan was to experiment and just see what it would do. I mean. We were probably picking those things for five or 10 minutes and it became very clear, very fast that I wasn't sure I could drive us home. I didn't eat anything. I didn't smoke anything just from picking them and those juices soaking in my hands. I felt like my head was going long and tall and long and tall, like I couldn't focus on anything, um, but that's how that's how that stuff is used anyway as a what they call f- a flying ointment, witches ointments, um, which centers around the same plants: um, henbane, mandrake, datura, brugmansia. What's the one Eladon. that looks like uh, you posted that? Um, was it James Joyce? Um, Finnegan's uh, way. There's a mandrake. Yeah, yeah. That, the, the mandrake features. is always depicted as like a walking, uh, it almost looks like that. Yeah, like a stick figure, right? Yeah, it looks like a little. So that's where we get our idea for in alchemy. They call it a homunculus or a homunculo, a tiny man. Um, in Yeah, supposedly and, we've got a homunculi, a person, or that used to be the thought that we that's have. That's what it comes from. A person living you, up in, you, yeah. When you read about um, it, uh, the hand of glory in old witchcraft stuff, the hand of glory is mandrake. Um, it's it's in the potato family. Nightshades is a broad family. It includes tobacco, yeah, tomatoes, <laughs> tomatoes, nightshade, eggplant, eggplant yeah, eggplant, yeah. To potatoes, all, and actually, all nightshades are not. Do get your genetic testing done for uh, things that you should eat or not, because there's a lot of people that have issues with nightshade. I know 
Maurice mm-hmm. went to the doctor and was, because uh, he had really bad psoriasis outbreaks, um, and they said stay away from nightshades for whatever reason. So Interesting. Yeah, nightshades are powerful. Um, and it also shows up in poppets. Uh, there's a tradition uh, in and European it's not an American American mandrakes aren't aren't really active but they're they're a completely different species what but about cannabis was was cannabis used in any of these tribes or Native uh, Americans Native American no no not that I know of no there are things that are considered um, cannabis surrogates like wild daga and stuff that I've seen claims were used, but uh, I've not seen any proof of it. I, I, I'm a big forager. Anything that grows out here, I'm out every season harvesting what's available. And I've never seen anything like that. You've never seen wild cannabis or... I found wild tobacco. Well, it makes you wonder too. When know. was that brought over here? Um, you know, at what I don't point, think was it Native Americans? Was it Europeans? Like who brought the, who brought the cannabis? The cannabis goes back to um, because I know the uh, earliest the, the earliest evidence. Yeah, the plains of Tibet. There's an article written that says it could go back. To, it might have even been uh, domesticated as long ago as a hundred thousand years ago and maybe even by neanderthals Uh, yeah so right um, i believe i believe it probably was because it's such a useful plant even if you're not using it um for its entheogenic properties it's a food the fibers uh, make clothes i mean it's just you know the, the 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 botanists argue that these plants produce these substances as a means to protect themselves against use. But I find that completely a faulty, I, I, I don't agree. I don't think that's what it is. A good example is, um, well, let's take uh, the cicadas. I'm sure you saw the, 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 the psilocybin cicadas. cicadas, right? That has psilocybin in it. They claim that, psilocybin mushrooms produce psilocybin because they're competing for the same food source with insects. They both want the feces they're growing on, cubensis anyway. And they produce this psilocybin to get the bugs intoxicated enough to not worry about eating the poop they want to live on. But here's the problem with the cicadas. Um, And there's evidence that it's not just with cicadas, but with cicadas, we know this cordyceps mushroom that infects them, that contains psilocybin, makes them sex crazed to the degree that they will imitate the opposite sex that they are just to have sex with another of the same species. You tell me, is that to the advantage of the mushroom? If this thing gets sex crazed and goes and produces more of itself and (laughs) multiplies itself so that more of its things will come there and eat the same poop. uh, uh, That's I think, I think nature is more intelligent than that. 
and I, and I completely part ways with this um, modern botanist argument that it exists to deter the insects. If it's going to make them sex crazed, it's I mean, encouraged. I've talked about my trip report. <laughs> I took, um, I think, like four grams silent darkness and meditated. And it showed me, yeah, well, I, you know, when I do that, I, I actually started doing that, believe it or not, before I found out about the heroic dose, Terrence McKenna. Even though I've been, I've been doing psychedelics for like 20 years. Right. I've been been doing psychedelics for over 20 years and I just found out about Terrence McKenna like four years ago or five years ago when I started doing this podcast. So um, the first book I ever read, the very first book. Now, when I was a little kid, I was into poetry. So I remember reading Edgar Allan Poe. Like the first book I checked out from a library was a book of Paul Simon's poems. I think I was like six years old. But the first book I ever read from cover to cover was Terrence McKenna and Dennis McKenna. I mean, and I told that to Dennis. He, Dennis interviewed me. Not true hallucinations. And, yep, it was true hallucinations. Dude, La Charrera, that that whole part about trying to recreate the sound from the mushroom that was the mushroom was created and trying to harmonize with the sound of that the mushroom. buzz sound yeah the buzz well, noise dude the buzz and noise, and, the, you know? and then you know the wind blowing noise do you get mm-hmm. the wind blowing noise that makes you squint and yawn like all the time i get that like yeah yeah yawning is is pretty rough right, right? But, but with his insect the buzz noise so um on bicycle day of 2000 18 i think it was i was struck by lightning on dmt i i was i was on lsd um i had taken three hits of Sweet. before we get going you were on a bicycle on lsd on bicycle day no, and, was, and got struck by lightning it wasn't a bicycle. <laughs> no no it wasn't a bicycle. i was on my balcony okay okay and my i had taken three parachuting bears of these type of uh, really great type of LSD and it was on bicycle day. And my intention was that at midnight I was going to smoke DMT Um, because I I find that if you smoke DMT from baseline, it's, it's so abrasive. It, it's not comfortable. It's unbearable for me. But if I smoke it when I'm already on LSD, it's almost like I'm just hopping on top of the mountain. I'm not being thrown way up there. It's the the abrasiveness goes away. So when I when I was doing DMT at that time, I would do it on LST, and uh, I had taken three hits, and there was a thunderstorm happening, and the lightning was magnificent. This magenta purple kind of thing going on. And I was on the second floor of my apartment and I, that we have a balcony, had a balcony. And I was out there trying to get a picture of that lightning. And every time it would flash, I I would take my picture, but I'd never catch it. You know, I would miss it every time. And so at one point I thought, fuck it, I'm, I'm not going to do this anymore. It's midnight. It's time to do the DMT. And I walked inside and I already had my pipe ready I picked it up and I took one hit 
usually when I do DMT, uh, when I did DMT back then, I made it a point to stay in the seat, <laughs> not, not to get up and walk around. But for some reason, I got up and walked out on the balcony and put, I remember putting my hands on my hips and just kind of looking out, watching for a lightning flash. And I didn't see it. My wife saw it. The lightning struck the tree in the courtyard in front of me. And I got hit with rebound lightning. And it didn't, it didn't hurt. Uh, all I remember is being paralyzed. I couldn't move. My hands were stuck on my sides. I remember thinking in that moment. Did you get that shock like, feeling that you get? Like sometimes when you plug something in and like shocks you kind yeah, of. Yeah. I definitely felt the electricity, but it didn't hurt. And I put, I had my hands on my hips and I remember thinking, I bet I look like Peter Pan with my, like that's what was my thought at this moment. I bet I look like Peter Pan. And then I started. The only Peter Pan worth a damn is the movie hook, bro. Get it right. Rufio. Rufio. That's, that's exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Um, but, but I, I'm standing there with my hands stuck to my hips. I'm paralyzed and I hear this noise coming from like behind me somewhere that sounds like an insect at the time. I didn't think, Oh, this is like what Dennis was talking about, but I heard this noise and it was very unnerving. I thought, man, I wish that, I wish that would stop. I don't like that. My wife later told me it was coming from me. I was making that sound, this ungodly gurgling, buzzing noise. Yeah, you're probably like, um, I have no, I, I have no idea. I can't to this day. I can't remember what it sounded like. I just remember not liking it. Dude, that's crazy. It, it's a, it's for real. Like I, I believe Dennis you. wasn't wasn't bullshitting. There is a. There's a sound you can make that's that is like almost like a cicada screaming. I don't know. Oh, I, I've tried it, bro. It's you can't. I couldn't. I mean, you know, I'm a musician. You're a musician. You can match pitch. It's like a to me. It's like a pinch harmonic that's almost you're unable to recreate in a way. It's I don't know that's how to explain good, it. That's a good description because it is a. It, it's not one tone. I mean it. it it was it was like two tones, maybe three tones, almost like like Tuvan throat singing or something. But but yeah, like falsetto. the Tibetan throat singers or whatever. Yep, but falsetto. It was high. It wasn't a low sound. It was a a trill. You know. Yeah. Well, yeah, I was gonna say about that trip report though in the silent darkness. Um, I was kind of shown it was not like, I don't know, people say download. I hate saying download. I don't know what to call it. But you feel like you're getting information from somewhere else outside of yourself. Not that you're yeah. coming up with it, but that it's coming to you. And I was, this is what came to me. This that's was always in, the case. Yeah, this was in yeah, 2000. Let's just, see here. You're just aware of the process. This was from 11-17-20. I actually have a trip journal uh, I started keeping. I actually found ones from high school, too. I, there was a bunch of years I forgot to do it. But um, this one sa- this came to me that mushrooms might give off, give off psilocybin so that people 
have reverence for them and we do not destroy them or the planet um, or anything predatory to them. It says, you know, eating them could save the planet. It is a technology. It makes you more empathetic. Um, now that's not true for everybody. Obviously we, like you mentioned earlier, people are assholes everywhere. It doesn't matter if you're into psychedelics or you're a Mason or this or that, you know, assholes are assholes. They're everywhere, unfortunately. But that was the thing that I was pondering because I've was always under the assumption, the same thing you said that like maybe psilocybin was evolutionarily, um, created by fungi to put, you know, keep, insects and what ants and whatever away i don't believe that the power that it has what it does to we evolved alongside of these things and we're actually evolutionarily closer to fungi than we are actually the plant kingdom believe it or not um no that's true and actually fungi are closer I, i should say it that way fungi are closer to us evolutionarily than fungi is to plants so Mm-hmm. I know it's the same thing. But but I... the, our, man's relationship with the mushroom, <clears throat> particularly uh, the cubensis variety. You can't have cubensis without cattle. And you can't have cubensis without cattle that are fed corn. Man is the fourth part in that quadratic equation. If you, so I invite you to study the history of corn. Just look at corn. Wild corn doesn't look like the corn we know. It'll have a few grains, a few kernels of corn on it. In order for it to be full of a a full corn cob, like what we're used to, requires an entire field of these things growing because every single grain of pollen that gets caught on the stamen of that other plant becomes a corn kernel. Every single kernel on the corn cob used to be a single grain of pollen. It takes man to till the field and to plant them to get those numbers that would provide what we call corn now even traditional corn too like mesoamerican maize or whatever has like half to a third of the amount of kernels on it if you look at it that's right the the amount of kernels are determined by the pollen available to the field to the plants now if you have cattle we know that psilocybe cubensis mushrooms grow on the feces of bovines but they won't grow on them unless you feed them corn grain fed cattle even that's not enough you have to build a fence around them or tie a rope to them to a tree so that they'll shit in the same place over and over to make the soil able, capable of of maintaining, of, of supporting the mycelial network necessary to produce the fruiting bodies that we call mushrooms that induce these experiences. 
this is a, a complex symbiotic quadratic relationship between man, corn, mushrooms, and cows. Both, I mean, it doesn't have to be cows. It can grow in rhino poop. It can grow in pig poop. You know, but here... Does, do they grow on those other poops? Yes, oh, they, they absolutely do. do. Oh, okay. Yeah, John W. Allen, um, famous amateur mycologist. I don't know, maybe he's a professional mycologist. I think he's an amateur mycologist. But he he picks them on on elephant, uh, uh, excuse me, rhino poop in uh, in Thailand or somewhere wherever wherever the hell he is. I'm not sure. Maybe it is elephant poop. I think it grows on both as long as they're grain fed. But I'm not an expert in that area. I could be wrong. I know they grow on. You're not an expert on cow poop. poops. Cow poop. <laughs> I'm an expert on cow poop. <laughs> No, when I was 15, I went to juvenile hall for picking mushrooms out of a, uh, out of a judge's field. I didn't know he was a judge or I'd have never been in that field, but yeah, I, 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 I get a long history of cow field picking. Yeah. I well, mean, I've, I've never done that, but I've, I've bought enough, uh, mushrooms on the fish and dead lots and jam band lots that I'm sure something I've eaten has come off, uh, some poops well i so my family lives on a cow field like this from way before i was born my parents were born in tate county mississippi and what is now a cow field where i pick my mushrooms um, used to be a slave cemetery and when we go out there we clean up the gravestones we set them back up and, you know because they get knocked over by the cows but <clears throat> I took some spore prints and sent them to folks in Detroit when Detroit got decriminalized. And they wanted a strain name. I said, well, there's they're Cubensis. And they said, no, what strain is it? So I didn't know what to say. I said, they're Delta Blues. <laughs> so from Mississippi, it's a Delta Blues. And now that's like a... Uh, that's kind of a household name among uh, Colorado you know, psychedelic groups. But that's how available they are here. As long as those cows are fed grain, corn, then it's only a matter of time before some spores get in the field. And we average, I mean, I haven't picked in five or six years, you know, since my, since my son was old enough to need me here with him every day. Um, he's on the autism spectrum and I homeschool him. But prior, prior to that, we would average 10, 11 pounds dried every year out of that field. Yeah, that's, that's a lot. That's, it's a lot, but it's not like penis envy. No, no, no. like you said, I think you said last time you need like, two times the amount of normal dried or something like that at least at least yeah so if i take a if i take 20 grams of the mushrooms i pick it's closer to a quarter 10 grams of something like penis envy so i, I like to i like to make that point because when people hear me say i i 
take 20 and 30 grams. I'm not taking 20 and 30 grams of penis envy. If I had penis envy, I probably would not exceed a quarter. So obviously, I mean, there's a backstory to the penis envy ones. If anybody's interested, Hamilton Morris has a podcast where he talks to this guy. I think his name's like Richard Gutierrez or something. And what he did was he took the original spore prints from the Amazonian um, psilocybe that Terrence and Dennis brought back in the seventies from La Chirera. from La Chirera, And he took, they went to La, Chir- uh, went to, La Chirera to find Ukuhe. Right. DMT. Edible, but yeah. They got sidetracked by those mushrooms. Right. And they got sidetracked by the mushrooms because there's just fields of them. And they're like, Oh, well, whatever. Well, let's take a look at it. So anyways, they brought those back and kind of, you know, aside from Wasson going down and meeting with Maria Sabina, I would say that that them coming back and bringing it back and kind of started this whole mushroom, uh, revolution, uh, psychedelic revolution in a way. Anyways, uh, to bring my point around though, is that this guy took the spore prints from those and, um, something happened where he saw this abort that looked like really weird or something like that. So he started cultivating this abort and actually penis envy is this abort, um, of those Amazonians. And then he found out that they're like super, super potent. So penis envy, from what I understand in my own experiences, taking lots of different types of psilocybin over the years and everything, penis envy is kind of the only one that's really distinguishable <laughs> in terms of like dosage where, um, kind of what you're a saying, golden maybe teacher. golden teachers too, but penis envy is by far the strongest. You talk to anybody, it's not even a question. I think so. Yeah. So, yeah. And, and, and when you say abort, um, it's not like, Aborts on, on on a cow pie when you pick them. The aborts are after it produces its main flush and you pick those, it'll produce some smaller ones that won't get any bigger and die off. That's, and maybe I'm wrong. I don't think that's what he did. I think he was cultivating them on agar. <clears throat> and the problem with mushroom spores that you pick in the wild is they're not alone. They have other fungi. Other yeah, yeah. No, this guy was a. Uh, this guy was a. Um, oh, I forget. I don't know if he was a biologist. He was not doing. He was doing this in a lab. He was not doing this on cow patties. Yeah. So he he. That's what I'm saying. It's not that they were aborts. Aborts are technically the the little guys that you don't use because the mushroom decides all my energy is working here and I like this. These, these little ones aren't necessary. Like McKenna said that the mushrooms aren't the hallucinogen. They're the sex organs of the hallucinogen. So the aborts are like flaccid penises that don't get to ejaculate. What he was doing, the Guti, I I don't know if that's his name. I can't remember either. Um, But what I'm looking it up. I'm looking it up right now. I believe he was cultivating them on agar, which allows spores to grow in sections like a map. So if you have one bacteria, it will be maybe to the the northwest quadrant quadrant of your disc. But you can tell what is the mycelial network of the cubensis. It looks hairy and it'll stand up taller. And using a, a, a scalpel, they'll cut that section out and just grow 
that section on a new agar and that's what allow what creates different strains now you've got strains like have you seen the blobs that look they're just monstrous There's yeah I've, blobs uh, like fish fins yeah if you go on uh, my buddy lee's app dmt world there's tons of people with all sorts of different you know, I'm sure anybody that's uh, if you're on, it's hard though because they got rid of it's a lot of that crazy. stuff on ma- a lot of the main social media. Like you can't do any of that stuff on like Instagram or anything anymore. You have to go to um, some of these forums. There's, you know, um, what's it called? What's that mushroom forum online? I forget the name of it. Um, Shroomery. Shroomery. Yep. Uh, but yeah, you know, I guess it's all over Reddit too. Um, but yeah, they're 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 cracking down on all that stuff online. You can't really. Well, I mean, the other thing is, is I do get spammed. I get spammed with like tons of people trying to 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 sell and source shit online. It's like, dude, get that shit off my page. Like, it's ridiculous. You know, like I can't on. comment. I can't comment on a YouTube video without it being followed uh, by some yeah. Or spores up here with the yeah. thing pointing. <laughs> It's like we love we love these things, and obviously we're trying to push this thing forward. But that's not helping anybody. In fact, you know who knows no. if they're cops or whatever the fuck's going on too. So, like I said earlier, I don't. I mean, I don't. This ain't free energy. I mean, I don't believe it's for everyone. It's 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 an initiated thing. I mean, not everyone will agree with me, but I think very much like ancient indigenous people. You're not a man until other men pass you into manhood. That I feel like that's true also of psychedelic states. You can take them by yourself all you want, but there's an initiated mode of taking them that bypasses that need to, oh, let's figure this out. Let's see what this does. Guess what? There are people who have been doing it for eons and passing it down and have asked that question and it's no longer relevant. That's that's really how I think about these territories. Yeah, and um, well, if, oh, if anybody's interested... Uh, it doesn't say his name in the thing. I think it's Richard something. I don't know. It's it's called the True Story of the Penis Envy Mushroom. It's on Hamilton's pharmaco- uh, Hamilton Morris podcast. It's on Spotify. Um, you know, uh, they go through the whole thing, everything we were just talking about. Even he talks about other people trying to pass off his work as their own, like some guy named Mushroom John, who I guess is prevalent in the psychedelic mushroom. Um, pantheon who guy. yeah who, who steals everybody else's ideas apparently so um yeah i don't know uh but yeah fascinating stuff let's wrap it up here dude we've been going for two and a half hours i know you and i have to still attend to something else here for a few minutes so um we're gonna keep doing this um and uh yeah i don't know once twice a month whatever PD's down for obviously we do mind escape episodes one or once or twice a week so whatever you want to do but i f- feel like this was a great first episode with all the native american stuff and uh just putting it out there right now miss awaska is PD's. so if you hear anybody else talking about it please reach out to me or him let us know because that's bullshit because i know he's been talking about this for a while 
Um, it's part of his research going forward. And I wanted to get this on record. It's on record here. So if you, again, if you hear anybody talking about it, please let us know um, because this is groundbreaking stuff. And he puts a lot of time into this to have uh, the vultures come in and, uh, you know, pick at stuff like they tend to do. So thank you, Mike. Yeah, of course. Um, and yeah, that's it. Check out PD's books, Alchemically Stoned and Angels in Vermilion. Uh, the links are down below. PD has a Facebook group, uh, which I am a part of. Great stuff. Again, if you're interested in all those books and stuff we were talking about earlier, follow PD on either Facebook, uh, Instagram, Twitter, one of those. I'm sure you'll be able to find some of the stuff he's posting that he's recently read and trying to sell or whatever. And, um, yeah, I think, uh, oh, please check out Leah again. Uh, Leah was on the show earlier. She had to dip out. Um, she's got to be up early uh, for uh, school. So check out at Leah Prime on Twitter. Also, she does have uh, a podcast called The Invisible Night School. She does on YouTube. Check that out. But her website's down below. And the best way to support Mind Escape is to click on the link tree link down below. Uh, we have our documentary, which is premiering um march 10th through 12th at the roswell ufo expo that is coming up here in a couple weeks pumped for it i will be speaking uh virtually unfortunately i may unable to make it uh but i will be speaking there virtually and again shout out to toby and shane follow both of them i have the links down below and uh, what else uh oh yeah we did a patreon segment with pd uh, and he was on two episodes ago so if you want to you know you were interested in more of the esoteric and ancient stuff we talked way more about that on that episode um uh last episode we had andrew galmore on that was a fantastic episode as well and i'm just trying to think what else um yeah cool merch uh, in our merch store um yeah, and check out the the trailer. I'm going to play the trailer, actually, as we exit out of here for the documentary. Um, and uh, it's it's coming down to the wire. It's coming together, actually. Um, so I'm, I'm very excited to see how this thing turns out and see people's reactions to it. You never know when you put yourself out there and put these ideas out there how people are going to respond. But um, we, wanted, we wanted to make a UFO psychedelic com- combo that um is for people that are into that stuff there's a lot of crossover there so and we were just talking about true hallucinations there's a quote terrence says in that book that somehow ufos are tangled up into this psychedelic mystery you know so um that was my inspiration for this is you know bringing this is something we've been talking about since the beginning of this podcast is those two things and how they cross over so um yeah, shout out to Dennis, shout out to uh, R.I.P. Terrence, huge inspiration. And uh, yeah, oh, check out, our, check out our other podcast, the Roswell UFO Symposium. We just did two great episodes on there with uh, me, Toby, uh, and Shane. We had John Burroughs, who is one of the experiencers uh, from the Rendlesham Forest incident, which is one of the most famous UFO incidences, and he had physical... Um, stuff you know that he john mccain actually had to declassify his medical records to get him help because he was in bad shape after that whole thing so um crazy um and then we also had james fox who's the director of the phenomenon and most recently moment of contact so go check out that stuff uh, the roswell ufo symposium 
And uh, yeah, I think we'll wrap it up here. Again, this will be an ongoing series. We'll pick a different psychedelic topic next time, but I really appreciated PD sharing his Missawaska hypothesis and his different research and theories into all this Native American research that he's doing, which is incredible. Shout out to Dr. Greg Little, uh, who's also in our documentary, oddly enough. And um, yeah, Thanks, lots of Greg. things coming together here. So listen, we love everybody. Uh, stay safe out there, and uh, we'll catch you next time. Peace. Is it real or is it not? That's what you're asking me. I still, to this day, can't find any rational explanation for what I saw. Extremely intelligent, apparently highly advanced, hyper-technological being. I think that we just don't look at the perception of reality in the right way yet. It got very close the point that I could see just one big light and then it stopped and then it shot up in the sky. You know, you know you're not dreaming, but you wonder how real any of it really is. It dawned on me, it, it was real, this, this took place, but then I still didn't do anything with it, never said anything to anybody. There is some mind-altering aspect to these UFO encounters. Uh, a lot of people get a sense of missing time. I noticed that these three stars were kind of in a formation. It was a triangular formation. Condensed into entities or beings that uh, you interact with who are sentient. The chemicals which are going into our brain are making the unconscious archetypes come alive how things evolve from pure energy to matter. Definitely was kind of a paradigm shifting moment. And as we continue to evolve in our own consciousness, we will perceive of new modes of interpretation, but that may be dependent upon how this supposed phenomenon reveals itself to us. I'm not sure why we discredit the human experience when it's not in alignment with our current belief system. It's important to consider that, one, we don't really understand what our minds do under the influence of psychedelics. Uh, they all attest to the reality of some other realm. You call it the paranormal, doesn't matter what you call it, spiritual realm, supernatural, metaphysical, doesn't matter. The fact that we're essentially vibrating energy in a sense, and that when this experience is over, that that particular energy transforms and doesn't die because it can't die, fills me with a lot of comfort that there is something else after this so-called here and now. They show you how much of your reality is subjective and fragile and capable of being influenced by a psychedelic drug. Coming from a scientific background, you come up with explanations that range from geomagnetics to atmosphere to something that's physical in nature. There's a lot more out there that we don't know than we do know. So the entire system, the human body, is effectively a stimulation response machine. I think something's here.
I don't know what it is. I don't know where it's from. It could be extraterrestrials. Until it made a full rotation and then it just hit an insane speed and just shot up straight into the atmosphere. I think that there's compelling evidence that psychedelics have played a significant role in human evolution over a long period of time. The our view of reality, the reality that we experience on a day-to-day basis, seems to be this very, very thin slice of something far larger and far more As within, so without. From UFOs to DMT.